Greetings and welcome to the SLIS Colloquia, a program now in our eighth consecutive semester brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier and along with Dale David, our technical producer, we are offering this series as part of our school's vision to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Before I introduce today's colloquium, a few announcements. Please look for new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website throughout the term, where you'll also find a webcast archive of all of our previous presentations on the SLIS homepage at slisweb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts, details on how to access these presentations either through RSS feeds or the iTunes store can be found on the colloquia page. Viewers can also watch the SLIS Colloquia on Blip TV, the popular video sharing website. The SLIS Blip TV channel can be accessed at sjsuslis.blip.tv. For our students, I would like to encourage you to visit a special website dealing, uh, detailing the social networking opportunities the school offers to you uh, to connect virtually and otherwise with other SLIS students. It's our own social networking wiki site. The school also maintains another wiki called Cool Web 2.0 Tools, which offer a way to share and learn about the rapidly changing resources you will want to know about. While these previous announcements were intended primarily for our SLIS students, I also have a few for everyone in the SLIS community. The school maintains a robust profile at our professional associations, so I'd like to call your attention to the school's upcoming professional conference appearances as well. We will be at the Public Library Association Conference in Portland, Oregon between 23 and 27 March, and please join us at our reception on Thursday evening, 25 March at the Marriott City Center. We will also be at the Montana Library Association Conference 7 to 10 April in Bozeman, Montana. Between 2 and 5 June, SLIS will be in Edmonton, Alberta, Special Library Association between uh, 13 and 15 June in New Orleans, Louisiana, and at the annual American Library Association Conference, of course, in Washington, D.C., between 24 and 30 June. Finally, please make plans now to attend two very special mid-May events. The first concerns uh, the evening of Thursday, 13 May, in San Jose at the school, as the school celebrates the retirement of our director, Dr. Ken Haycock. And then two days later, on Saturday, 15 May, we celebrate the commencement of our current 2010 graduates. Find all of the details and RSVPs on our SLIS's homepage. The faculty hope to see you at these professional conferences and that you take the opportunity to become acquainted with us and as well as meet up with classmates and friends and colleagues. We hope you enjoy the colloquia presentations and thank you for helping to make this series such a success. Today we are pleased to have two speakers. Dr. Joni Richard Brodart is assistant professor here at San Jose State. She received her PhD in library and information science from Texas Women's University. Dr. Brodart is a well-known speaker and workshop leader on book talking, YA literature, adolescent culture and development, and promoting and defending controversial literature for teens. She has authored 19 books, the most recent of which, Radical Reads, Working with and Defending the Newest Edgy YA Fiction was published in 2009. And it is my pleasure to publicly announce today 
that the school has recently learned that Dr. Bodart has been named the recipient of the 2010 Scholastic Library Publishing Award, formerly known as the Grolier Award, for being an outstanding leader in the field of librarianship and children's and young adult literature. Our second speaker today is Beth Ranestis, who served as a young adult services librarian in Colorado's Douglas County Libraries. Beth has been a very active leader in Colorado library community, such as serving as the president of the Colorado Association of Libraries and a member of the Colorado Library State Intellectual Freedom Committee. She's an active in youth services uh, and has worked in both school and public library environments. She has also developed workshops for teachers and librarians on storytelling, book talking, and adolescent and adult information seeking behavior. Beth is also a member of our first cohort of Gateway PhD students and is currently teaching several classes here at SLIS. Please welcome Dr. Joni Richards Bodart and Beth Ren Estes. We're going to talk to you today about some of the changes that I th that we think are important in the curriculum for um, the librarians that are going to be working with teens or um, tweens. And as you can see here, I, um, I'm going to be talking about adolescent culture in this country and how it has changed um, in the last few years. And then I'm going to talk about some of the developmental characteristics of adolescents. Beth is going to be talking about um, making the library a third place after school and home that so it can be a safe place for adolescents to go and um, she's also going to be looking at how why a librarians can bring together adolescents and those that write for them um, and she will have some other information for you um, adolescents today are in a culture of abandonment and alienation existing separately from the adult culture. Different researchers call it different things. Ron Toffel calls it a second family. Uh, Patricia Hurst says that adolescents are a tribe apart. And Chap Clark calls it the world underneath. But no matter how it is conceptualized, these terms describe one thing. And that is that adults live in one culture and adolescents live in another. And for the most part, these two don't connect or overlap other than in the most insignificant ways. Middle and, and high school students have fewer and fewer adults in their lives who can act as role models. And as a result, these adolescents must learn how to become adults from their peers who are in the process of also learning how to become adults. They are unable to have adults that they can depend on to give them this information as previous generations have done. In the past, adolescents proudly proclaimed their independence and their rejection of adult mores and beliefs. And today, before they even have a chance to do that, adults have rejected them. Adults don't bother to reach out to them. They're left on their own. And in many instances, adults also condemn, condemn them for making costly mistakes born of ignorance of the way the world works. 
and this is happening at a time when research demonstrates that our society is more dangerous than it has been in previous years. Now, a wide variety of things have contributed to this phenomenon, and it had, they have been developing since the 60s and the 70s. First of all, there were changes in the family. Um, the nuclear family fractured. Uh, there was increased mobility and relocation of the family. Um, there necessity for two paycheck households, so there's no one to be at home, um, perhaps before school or after school, to take care of kids. Um, secondly, there have been changes in society as a whole. There's an increase in societal dangers and predators. There's a growing sophistication and immediacy of communication using a, a variety of technologies and their changes in the social athletic organizations that were originally um, designed to support adolescents and adolescents. Modern teens are on their own, entering a time of life that has traditionally been difficult to navigate, even with the support of caring adults. And they must do it with the support of their friends. And their friends likely know don't know more about being adults than they do. How did this sea change take place? In the past, there were many organizations, structures, and extended family ready to help the adolescent make the change from childhood to adulthood. When adolescence began in the late 1940s, it lasted about three to four years, the years that were spent in high school. The family then was a solid unit with parents, children, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins. There were adults of various ages and with various kinds of experiences to coach the adolescent and explain what adulthood meant and how to achieve it. Adolescence was a new and newly affirmed and identified stage of life and it had a distinct cultural niche. Organizations such as Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, YMCA, and a variety of informal sport or church-related groups formed to support and assist those in this life stage. But the 60s and 70s brought turmoil, social unrest, and changes in the way the family was structured. Two career families became more common so did divorce and remarriage. And these things began to fragment what had once been the most stable partnership in the country. Families had to move to follow jobs or to get away from the memories of broken relationships. And connections and friendships had to be recreated with each move. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s brought more change including a feeling of entitlement and a focus on the individual to make um, sense of all of these changes to decide what was needed for individual success or failure. Adults were becoming increasingly self-absorbed with their own problems and conflicts and paid less and less attention to meeting the, develop need, the developmental needs of their adolescent children. 
Instead, adults praised them for being mature and able to handle things on their own because it freed those adults from having to continue to take care of them or even talk about them, talk to them in a deeper than surface level. Over the years, media became increasingly important. Television had been a major force since the 1950s, influencing the way that we got our news and our entertainment and changing the way we experienced reality. War was no longer a half a world away. It was in our own living rooms. Celebrities had every detail of their lives and deaths recorded and played over and over. In the 80s and 90s, personal computers became almost ubiquitous, and the on online information began to influence the way that we lived. By the turn of the century, the World Wide Web touched every part of our lives and changed the ways that we communicated, learned, shopped, and were entertained. Technology allowed individuals to share their ideas, questions, and beliefs with thousands of people at a time. Social networking software made it possible for anyone to reinvent themselves, and many did, including the short fat kid at the pizza place in the country song by Brad Paisley. He's never been to second base, but he is tall, rich, handsome, and sought after on his MySpace page. He's a whole lot cooler online. A wide variety of computer games went online, allowing players from all over the world to compete against each other. Telephones were replaced by cell phones. Personal computers became affordable and then essential and then portable. Today we have phones that make and answer calls, sometimes more than one at a time, surf the web, send and receive email, contain GPS systems, and use a wide variety of customized applications based on the need of the owner. People not only want information, they want it immediately, and the easier to find, the better. Teens and tweens who have had instant communication for their entire lives have Facebook and MySpace accounts, call, text, and tweet constantly, ensuring that they stay in touch with their world and the people in, in it. As a result of all of these changes, our society and culture looks very different than it did just a few decades ago. While some adolescents still have a nuclear family with extended family from previous and current generations, the vast majority do not. Their parents are busy with their own lives, happy to be delight, happy to be free of caretaking responsibilities. In many families, teens come home from school, decide what they'll eat and when, do their homework, watch TV, text or call their friends, all without much or any contact with their parents. Adolescents spend 40% less time with their parents than they did 30 years ago. The single mother household is becoming the norm, and with those mothers at work, more than two million children under the age of 13 are left completely without adult supervision before and after school. No one takes care of them. 
They take care of themselves and of each other. School has also become more competitive and budget cuts have eliminated the programs considered to be less important. Teachers have been trapped by the requirement of standardized testing and may no longer have time to include subjects or activities that are not a part um, that are not a part of the curriculum that supports the test. In addition, life has become more dangerous in a variety of ways. More information is available to adolescents. But online information is unfiltered and not reliable. Basing action on it can be very risky. Drugs, guns, violence, and gangs are still around and innocents still die. We have been at war in the Middle East for 10 years and today's adolescents have grown up listening to reports of battles and suicide bombers, lists of dead and wounded, knowing that they could end up being a part of that war and maybe one of its casualties as well. And as the recession continues, teens and tweens worry about what's going to happen to them, just as their parents do. They aren't allowed to have the carefree or innocent childhood that those who came before them were able to enjoy. Another change in our culture is the length of adolescence, which is now far longer than it was when it began. At that time, adolescence referred to people who were in high school and adulthood began with graduation. But as a college education and for some a graduate degree became more and more necessary for success, that step has been delayed. If the hallmark of entering adulthood is the desire and the ability to live independently of parents, financially, psychologically, and physically, these late adolescents have not yet achieved it. They may be in their early and mid-twenties, but they do not yet know how to be adults. So what do today's adults need to help them survive the rejection and the abandonment of the adult culture? First of all, they need their peers, the others of their generation, their friends, those that they truly trust the second family that has replaced the nuclear family they have lost. It provides the structure in adolescents' lives, helps them make decisions, resolve problems, and provides emotional and psychological support. Secondly, as research has shown over and over, the difference between teens' success or failure, achieving or stagnating, stagnating is one adult who is present, affirming, supporting, advising, inspiring, and dependable. Children and teens are resilient. Most are able to overcome even the most difficult circumstances, but they can't do it alone. Their experiences leave scars but they can survive with the support of their peers if they have at least one caring adult, a relative, a friend, a teacher, coach, a librarian, or another adult who is available for the kind of authentic, 
one-on-one -on -one conversation that can allow a teenager to begin sharing what his or her life is really like. Behind the facade that teens wear when they have to deal with adults or others outside their culture, showing them as independent, successful, coping, maintaining, self-sufficient. But it's important to remember that these are just masks. And if no adult is available, there are other ways for teens to find one who can be a trusted source of information, wisdom, and affirmation. Contact doesn't need to be face-to-face. -face. Trust isn't limited to physical proximity. And the ability to get in touch with others 24-7 isn't limited to peers or friends. The web never closes, and anyone who can access it can reach out and touch someone else through email, websites, blogs, or tweets. And while it can be a dangerous place, for unwary or naive teens. It can also be a source of information and support from peers and also from YA librarians and authors who offer a safe place to talk and ask questions. YA librarians can use all of these digital pathways I mentioned to contact the teens in their community and to become one of the trusted adults that are turned to for information and support in addition to face-to-face -face connections they make in their libraries. But if they don't understand teens, their characteristic, and their needs, none of these paths will be effective, and they'll lead only to dead ends. LIS classes on materials and services for tweens and teens need to include information on adolescent development and culture to help teen librarians understand the age group that they will be working with. LIS programs that include information about the stages of adolescent development, as well as instruction about materials for teens and tweens, create effective YA librarians. With a background of knowledge about the stage of adolescence, the YA librarian can respond to teens, encourage them to come to the library, and become a trusted adult they will be willing to open up to. Adolescents are changing in every way, physically, emotionally, psychologically. And if they are difficult for adults to understand, they are even more puzzling to themselves. They're changing in many ways, and the changes are seen by the adult culture as threatening, inexplicable, or irresponsible. Teens are children one moment and adults the next. Their bodies are changing, and their brains are changing as well. Scientists have used MRIs to learn that the brain during adolescence goes through periods of growth, making hundreds of new connections and periods of pruning, so that the most important connections made when the individual repeats an activity consistently are the ones that remain. To an extent, the teen brain is rewiring itself in preparation for adulthood. This is why teens need a wide variety of things to do learn and experience to allow as many of those connections to, uh, 
and to allow as many connections as possible to stay strong. In addition, adults and teens use their brains differently. Adults use their frontal cortex to interpret emotions and make decisions. This is a thoughtful, reflective part of the brain. Teen brains have not yet matured enough to allow them to do this. Instead, they use one of the more primitive parts of the brain, the amygdala, that is responsible for gut responses that are more that are a more immediate reaction to the situation than a thoughtful response to it. Spikes of emotion that can be accompanied by verbal or physical violence are characteristic of activity in this part of the brain. Teens using this part of their brain um, to express emotion can be seen as much more emotional than they actually feel because this part of the brain deals with extremes. In addition, hormonal changes, which are normal during adolescence, can make emotion more difficult for the teen to cope with and for the adult to understand. Teens have a tremendous amount to deal with as they move from childhood to adulthood, with few adults to help them steer. That's why I believe that they need the materials that will tell them the truth no matter how grim or difficult it is. If they are unable to get the truth from adults, books may be one of the sources to which they turn next. They're looking for books that tell the truth, that show the reality that they and their friends have to grapple with, and that show them alternatives or answers that they may not have thought of. Their first source for this, these books is their friends. Peer recommendation is considered the most influential force for adolescents. But YA librarians who connect with teens at schools and at libraries can become a second powerful force, drawing teens and books together. Librarians cannot do this without appropriate training in library school and real experience on the front line. In order to provide materials, programming, and services that will meet the needs of teens, classes on materials and services need to include information about the changing, changes adolescents are going through. Changes in their bodies, changes in their brains, change in, changes in their emotions and how they're expressed, changes in the youth culture they live in, and changes in the world at large. LIS students need information on how to understand teens, on how to connect with them, how to inspire their trust through a genuine liking, through a genuine interest in and liking of teens, and how to use this information and understanding to become a trusted adult and make their library into a welcoming third place where they feel safe. And now Beth is going to talk to you about some trusted adults, the library as a safe third place, and how some of the issues that teen, teens are affected by are shown in their literature. Beth. Thanks, Tony. The number of teen and teen librarian positions is on the increase. 
It's keeping up with the demands of an increasing number of tweens and teens utilizing library services. The public library can position itself as a third place for adolescents to find adults who understand their needs in addition to their home and school environments. Librarians just beginning their careers, as well as seasoned librarians, need information on the culture of tweens and teens and the materials that will be most able to meet those needs. So where did the term third place come from? Ray Oldenburg coined the term third place in his 1990 book entitled The Great Good Place. In the book, he defines third places as informal gathering places where people in a particular community or neighborhood meet to develop friendships, discuss issues, and interact and network with others. Since that time in 1990, libraries, especially youth services departments within public libraries, have looked at the value that a third place for adolescents can bring to the community. Library information services programs, however, must stress the value of creating a community of trusted adults, which is one of the great factors of a third place, and also providing a safe place for alienated teens, because that's a special group to serve within a community. Alienated teens need to come and find much needed information through programs and books and find people who understand their needs and their lives. The seeds have had to create these third places can be sown in youth services course curriculum and continue to grow as the beginning librarian moves from student to librarian in the library environment. The librarian can be the voice in their community, an advocate for alienated youth and youth of all types within their communities. That advocacy can be continued internally at their library as well. While I was doing research, I came up with an individual that one day I would like to go and meet. She works for the Fremont County Library District in Illinois, and she has a fantastic third place library for adolescents. It serves a large adolescent population, and it takes pride in having created that third place. Joanne Ciarella, the Youth Services Librarian, has worked very hard with her administration and other staff members to create a welcoming, warm, safe environment for all adolescents in her community. I'd like to read a couple of quotes from her, and I put one of them up on the board because I think it speaks to the at-risk teenagers that she's trying to serve. But she goes on from this quote basically to say, our libraries are becoming third places. They have the necessary environment and the seeds of materials, programs, and services that go beyond traditional services and they bloom into third places. We have created a comfortable and inviting place for our young adults through being involved with our community, not just our schools, but our community. The library staff builds on these connections to create programs and activities that bring area students into the library. We encourage adolescents to come to our teen zone and we welcome them to hang out even when a program or activity isn't scheduled. We need to ensure that the trend towards creating third place libraries continues. Where better to start this advocacy and educational process than while students are in graduate school? Courses can teach how to create collections, material displays, and programs, but they also need to teach, as Joni pointed out, the developmental psychology issues that surround these teens every day. Part of the third place library concept as a librarian is that that librarian is a trusted adult. Trusted adults are approachable. 
They're armed with knowledge of emotional, physical, and psychological development, as well as how to build collections and provide programming and services. The basics are already in LIS curriculum, but we want to encourage expanding those areas of instruction. We want the study of alienated teens and how to serve them to become a regular part of LIS youth services education. San Jose, by the way, is way ahead of the curb on a curve, I'm sorry, curb, curve, on both the teaching of this in classes in the youth services uh, materials classes presently. Public librarians, as well as positioning the library as a third place, must become the entity that takes the lead on creating this community. Reaching out to schools and other members of the local community, including recreation centers, community service organizations, help to build a strong network of trusted adults that are all serving the same teen population in their community. An adolescent who is at risk will then have librarians, teachers, and other community adults all working together to create a network of trusted adults who ensure programs, services, materials, and adults who are approachable, who provide a safe and welcoming environment for adolescents. Librarians who collaborate with all these people within their community have a way to effectively advertise their programs and services to a much larger audience. They're able to reach more teens who frequent all those other places and who may come to the library to find a place where not only do they get information on the issues they are dealing with, but they also find a trained adult that will understand them and the issues that they face, their alienation, and they will help them lessen the feeling of alienation and abandonment that they feel. Public and school librarians with the background in how to create third places ensure they have the appropriate materials needed for issues alienated youth face. It's not uh, any longer just the issue of providing materials. It's providing materials for the abandoned and alienated culture that we're talking about today. Materials provided in a public and library setting must address relevant issues. And this chart shows you some of the relevant issues that Joni and I have put together, and you'll be able to download the PDFs that um, give you this list and also give you titles and authors from when you uh, listen to the presentation. These issues press buttons in certain parts of the community. So training for that librarian and LIS program on how to deal with controversial material is a must. Teens face these issues on a daily basis. And it's time for uh, library and information science to teach controversial literature, much like we do here at San Jose, but we'd like to see it on a national level, to get youth services librarians ready to go out and create that third place. Young adult literature treats characters and situations with realism. The list of issues facing teens today is so long that we have not included all of them here. We kind of made a compilation of some to put up, but there are many, many more that young adult literature deals with. Just a few, sexual identity, alienation from parents, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, substance abuse, abandonment, mental and physical conditions such as eating and cutting disorders are just a few of the things that young adult authors deal with. I wanted to put um, a little bit in here about trusted adults and uh, bibliotherapists. Um, Bibliotherapy has been around for um, absolutely forever. 
It started in mental health and then spread to schools and to libraries. But bibliotherapy, um, this is basically the um, academic definition of the word. But I like to think it's very simply healing with books. Very simple. It goes beyond just placing a book into the hands of a teen that they might like. It allows the librarian to not only place a book into the hands of teens um, that they might like, but place a book that they will help them heal with whatever that they're dealing with in their lives. Bibliotherapy is one of the most trusted methods of providing materials in a non-threatening way to a teenager. I put up just a 1966, the American Library Association um, basically defined it as guidance in the solution of personal problems through directed reading. And that's pretty dry. So healing with books, to me, really says it a lot better. But they did start to see the value of how a book could help a child through divorce, help a child through uh, being abandoned by their parents, foster care, all those issues. So in, in that respect, having ALA identify it as a major issue brought it to the forefront. And so people could start discussing it, including in their library collections. Young adult authors also provide the books that help us to do bibliotherapy. And we're not doing it as a mental health professional. We're doing it as a librarian, because we should think of ourselves as a trusted adult wanting to help heal that teenager through our expertise in giving them the right book. But young adult authors are who I'd like to talk to um, you about next, because I see them as one of the major players in a circle of trusted adults. Instructors in LIS programs can create assignments that include uh, contacting young adult authors and interacting with them. Students need to be encouraged to attend workshops, library students, excuse me, and conferences where young adult authors will be in attendance and to talk with them, to get to know them, to create a network. Youth services librarians can create programs that include uh, young adult authors as speakers. So many young adult authors are doing webcasts now with libraries and speaking directly through a webcast to teenagers who come to the library to speak with their favorite author. And the last slide I'll just let you um, look at, but it basically um, is going to go a little bit into why kids want that book. It, it makes them join with that character inside that book. It makes them live their pain through another character. And Joni and I both have people say, well, why is there hope at the end? You know, or why is it so dark? Well, there's hope at the end because there is hope. And these authors are telling someone you can go through the darkest thing as a teenager, but there's hope. And so that teenager who's struggling and feeling no hope has just been given a way to figure out how they might get out of the situation that they're in. There are so many authors, and we are also having you download uh, some information about authors, and we've provided all their contact information. And these are the people that Joni and I picked that are trusted adults and want teenagers and librarians and teachers to contact them. So we encourage you that, we also encourage you to read YA, but if you would like to um, tell an author that you like their book or that it was meaningful to you, um, there are so many that you can do that with. But I'm going to talk to you about two of the icons in not only the young adult literary community, but also in the trusted adults. 
One is Lori Halsey Anderson, and the other is Chris Crutcher. And they're, in the truest sense, trusted adults. Teens seek these two authors out. They talk to them, and they thank them for their books. They find comfort, answers, and hope in their novels that they can't find in the world that they're living in. Lori Halse Anderson is the author of several young adult titles, three of which have elicited both praise and challenges. Speak about the rape of a young woman and the aftermath, twisted about a young man struggling with growing up, sex, drugs, and the darker sides of the rites of passage. Winter Girls is about two girls, best friends, who battle eating disorders. Anderson says that in the 10 years since Speak was published, she has gotten thousands of letters and emails and has spoken to half a million high school students about her books. The message she's heard over and over again is how much they miss their parents. Some parents are physically gone, working two or three jobs to make ends meet, and other parents are just emotionally gone, even if they're present physically. She says adults today think that teens are trying to pull away from them, but teens really need adults in their lives, and a lot of kids are broken because adults who are willing, I'm sorry, <laughs> because adults aren't there for them. Present, emotionally engaged adults who are willing to share their knowledge, information, and wisdom, just as Lori does, make the difference. Because she is a YA author, writing about the pain and confusion of adolescence, she has been put in a somewhat unique position, as have many YA authors, of becoming a sort of mother-father figure, confessors for this generation. Lori, for many of her readers, has become that trusted adult who can help explain what is happening or has happened to them, to their friends, their school, their family, their world. They want us to show them how to find the strength to go on, Lori says. The other author, uh, author, who is one of Joni and I's favorite, not that Lori isn't, but Chris Crutcher is one of our favorites. Chris is a family therapist. He's been around for years, and he works with adolescents. He has a front-line view of them and their families. His books are extremely popular with adolescents who face serious issues on a daily basis, and it confirms that what he sees and experiences confirms to us that there's an ever-increasing gap between adolescents and our society. In a letter Crutcher posted to the Alabama teens of Limestone School District after Whale Talk was banned there because of its authentic dialogue, also known as cursing, in it he shared the story of the girl who was the inspiration for one of the most graphic scenes in his book. She was one of his clients at a mental health center where he worked. Her biological father didn't even know of her existence and her mother didn't have the emotional strength to keep her out of the eye of the hurricane of her stepfather's hatred. She couldn't eat at the table with her younger white stepbrothers until they had finished. She wasn't allowed to play with toys until they were broken and handed over to her. The first time I saw her, she was standing over a sink, frantically scrubbing her arms, trying to wash the brown off her skin so her stepdaddy would love her. The language of that four-year-old little girl used was even tougher than what my character used in Whale Talk. Chris listens to teens, and he hears their stories, and he writes about them. The teens contacting him think they don't exist, that they're invisible, and their disconnection deepens. They are left with only their peers to seek advice from. Chris says, I want to be, rem <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to be remembered as a storyteller. 
and I want to tell stories that seem so real that people will recognize something in their own lives and see the connections, because we're all connected. When we turn away from tough material and stories that kids face every day in real life, we take ourselves off the short list of people to turn to. Kids would much rather be found ways to discuss these tough issues than to pretend they don't exist. Pretending that they don't exist means teens' disconnection deepens and they are left with only peers to seek advice from. I want to stress, he continues, to beginning librarians, how easy it is to make contact with young adult authors. We love librarians. So I say please visit their websites, approach them at conferences, find out who is open to make contact with adolescents and how best to contact that individual author and make that connection between the two. There's several distribution avenues open to you. You can put contact information for authors on program information that you're handing out. You can include bibliographies and bookmarks with all your book displays that have the information. Kids love technology, so here's a way they can do it in a very non-threatening way by using the internet. All of the authors have a Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, and somebody to answer email if they're not doing it themselves. And Chris Crutcher and Lori Hulse Anderson also do their own email answers to kids. They put a disclaimer that says, it might take us a while to get back to you, but we will, and they do. When book-talking librarians can also encourage teens to contact the authors of the books that they're book-talking. And Joni and I both urge everyone in our materials classes to book-talk controversial literature. Authors and librarians as a team can make a difference in teen lives. So what I want is the same thing that Joni wants. I want to see the teaching of third place libraries um, taught in LIS curriculum and how to create circle of trusted adults as well as all the materials and the tools of programming and services that we already provide. We can teach our future librarians how to make a difference, continue to make a difference for our librarians that exist in the community already by some very simple adjustments to our LIS curriculum. Thank you. I'll turn the mic back to Joni. Let me just go over a few of the um, points that we've been talking about today. First of all, adolescents have become alienated from the rest of our culture, and they need connections with, successful ad with adults so that they can learn to become successful adults. Both YA librarians and YA authors can enter that group. LIS students need to, that want to work with adolescents, need the knowledge of how this group functions on a social and a psychological and a physical level. And this is why we urge putting this, this information into materials and services courses. YA librarians not only can become trusted adults, but can provide a gateway to YA authors who are able to become trust, trusted adults. And these are the units that we believe should be included. Students are going to need to know something about the adolescent culture 
and what that means, what it has meant over time, and how, what it means now and how that is different. They're going to need to know about what is going on in the brains and the bodies of teenagers as they enter a time of many, many developmental changes. Obviously, LIS students are going to need to know how to develop both materials and services to serve an alienated teen population. They also have to know what they're going to need to do to position the library as a third place, a place that is safe where adolescents can go to get help, to get ears to listen to them, can get what they don't get from other places. And they all, students also need to know how to connect with authors and how to create a community of trusted adults. Hi, um, Beth, I'm one of your students. I'm in your storytelling class. And um, listening to this lecture, I think about a couple of things. I um, received my BA um, in psychology. I am working for counseling services. I am a library student and now in storytelling. And so as I sat through this lecture, my question in my mind was saying, well, wait a minute. It sounds like you're trying to make librarians into psychologists, you know, because of all the various issues that are coming up in their lives. And it seems like we would have to understand psychology in a deeper way than just, you know, as librarians, but we really need to have a strong understanding of what the young people are going through and how we can best reach them. But now that I'm thinking about it, the storytelling to me is a very safe way of a student walking through whatever it is that they're going through and solutions being provided in a way so that a person really does not have to be a psychologist because ideally the author would have given solutions or completed the whole idea of whatever it is they were going through in the book. Am I right or wrong? Um, I, I just get a feeling that we need to know a lot more about, psych about psychology in order to best help our, our young people? Well, I think that uh, there's, there's two levels to the question. First of all, storytelling is a very effective way to reach teens. It's very um, non-threatening, and most librarians um, learn how to do that. They learn how to book talk. They, they have that in their skill bag, as it were. What we're trying to advocate and what Joni and I already include in our material classes for teens and, I, and also for tweens is a unit on developmental psychology. Now, it's just scratching the surface, but it's telling you about teenage behavior. For instance, very few years ago, everybody thought the brain developed and you, by a teen, you were, you know, your brain was developed. Well, current research, that's not true. So you're, you're dealing with a kid on a roller coaster when they walk up to you. And to be effective as a librarian, you have to have a basic understanding of your patron. Because if you don't, you're not going to get them to come hear your storytelling. You're not going to get them to come hear your book talks. But if you connect with them because you understand them and you accept them, because you're armed with knowledge about where they are, okay? You're not just saying, oh, those teenagers are in the library again. You know, and why are they so noisy? And why do they always have to sit together? 
those type of issues? Well, because that's where they are developmentally. Their friends are the most important thing in, on the planet to them. So if their friends come to a program and you're the storyteller and you're doing relevant stories to what they're going through, okay? And we're talking today about alienated youth, but it's, it's a growing population. There's middle-class kids, wealthy kids, poverty-level kids that are coming home to nobody mm -hmm. except their friends. We want them to be drawn into the library. So at Fremont, because this librarian and I are starting to communicate, because that's what I love about librarians is the networking. You just write and say, we're doing this talk, and you got a conversation <laughs> going. But, you know, just to answer your question, um, she provides slam poetry contests, gaming. She has a bunch of gamers come in and do gaming contests where they actually score points, and they've got master gamers from the local stores coming in. So she understands the psychology. She's not a psychologist. We're not saying to be a psychologist. That takes years of expertise. But we're saying to librarians, you are a teacher, and you need to understand how to reach. Because they're the future of libraries. They're going to grow up, and you want them to support libraries, don't you? Yeah. So if you skip over them, you're doing story hour, and then whoop, now they're in college, they might come back and not value the library. And we want them to value the library and find it a safe place. So I hope I answered your question. We want you to be an amateur psychologist. The new information for me is that uh, adolescence now extends into er early and mid-20s. And so I'm wondering if, um, you know, coming in today, I've, I figured that the uh, focus would be on public and community libraries. But I'm wondering if some of the principles you've shared have application in academic libraries. I think that that's, that's a good question. And I certainly think that. Um, arming academic librarians with some of the kinds of information that we're talking about today would be an appropriate way to go and would garner the late adolescent students um, a lot of, a lot of uh, understanding that perhaps they're not getting right now. Um, thank you very much. We hope you've given us, we've given you something to think about and to consider um, as you uh, evaluate what kind of coursework you're going to be taking during your SLIS career. Thank you.